This is the Pain Information Network. Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be about a number of things that I think are timely. One of them is abuse deterrent technology that has been mandated by, uh, in America, the Federal Drug Administration, to apply to new opioids introduced into our um, pharmacopoeia. So what that means is it has to have a way of protecting the core element of the opioid uh, via some mechanism so that it can't be abused. And what do I mean by abused? Taking it by mouth can lead to abuse, Uh, snorting, emulsifying, injecting, a number of things. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and a, a little bit of controversy surrounded that in my mind. Again, the world according to me. We're also going to talk about uh, pain-free deception, and that's where uh, you're being uh, plotted along and promised by things that can't be done. But I'm not to deflate hope. I'm going to tell you why it's important to know about this topic so that you don't get led down some path that's not going to be worthwhile. And we're going to talk a little bit about patience and sedentary uh, lifestyles and getting moving, a little bit of smoking, a little bit of weight control. They'll have a journal article of the week. And uh, I want to make a comment or two about some timely issues that I think will be affecting a lot of uh, patients in the near future as it comes to pain medicine and, and sometimes medicine in general. All right. So, all right. Well, let's get into this. All right. Informational uh, program. This is n- not to substitute the hands and eyes of a qualified professional that understands pain and understands your diagnosis. Remember, that's one of the five rules. You got to have a diagnosis, and you got to believe in the diagnosis, and you've got to have the tools and knowledge to do something about it. That's going to fall into the pain-free deception. Uh, there are some physicians or pseudo-physicians or life coaches or whatever they want to call themselves that will promise a lot and deliver very little. You want to be treated by a qualified professional. And um, a future podcast or two is going to uh, lay out some thoughts on uh, where you can find resources to find these folks. One place that you might want to begin with is ASIPP.org. They have a physician finder index there. All right, let's get started. Okay, patients not being active, they're sedentary. Uh, they, they can't get moving. Well, I hurt. I can't, I can't move when I hurt, and I can't go to physical therapy because I hurt. I can't partic- participate in wellness. I can't even walk around. I have to take to the bed. I hear this multiple times a week, sometimes multiple times daily. It's not good for us to hear that, but it's important for us to hear that. Remember our benchmarks, 3, 6, 9, and 12 months. This is where benchmarks play big. First of all, make your benchmarks realistic. And when you're a little younger, you want to be uh, you want to be all things to all people. You want to be a superman, superwoman, wonder woman, wonder man, whatever you want to be, but you can't always be that. You we want to Start off the race and just uh, leap forward in front of the crowd, and and we can do that, but towards the end of the race, we're dying. It's just uh, 
physical endurance issue. As we get a little older, that physical endurance issue really is important because <laughs> me in particular, um, use myself as an example, I still think I'm 19. And I was uh, uh, pretty involved in skiing, freestyle skiing in its early days. And I still think I can do all those things. So much so, my wife and I and family uh, made a ski movie when I was in my uh, 40s. And um, I was doing these uh, pretty <laughs> lame maneuvers that I used to do as a freestyle skier and trying to do that to me and my body. Do I pay for it? Oh, yeah, <laughs> pay for it. Do I pay for it immediately? Not necessarily. Think about, think about yourself and where you are and what stage of your life and what you can do and realistically expect of yourself. All right, in your 20s and 30s, you're not indestructible. You may think you're indestructible. You're not. The uh, abuse that some folks see uh, others taking, like uh, bull riding or um, whatever, uh, and this mountain biking straight down the hill, uh, it, it, the abuse you're taking then <clears throat> and you're shaking it off, is not necessarily shaking it off later. We see that with traumatic brain injuries and in football players now, and uh, there's a lot of talk about this. Those hits, they hurt. They don't necessarily bother you then. You may get a little concussion, but later on your, your physical changes and mental faculties are, are bearing out. Think, think of what you're doing in your 30s and 40s. Think of what you're doing. Is it really practical and reasonable for you to run a marathon? or to train for a marathon, or a half a marathon. That's personal. But it should be talked about with somebody that knows the demands and challenges of extreme sports. And uh, in, particularly, in particular, when I, I was a skier, there was no – I still am a skier. I love it. But there is no known um, line in the sand that you, you don't do. You know, I was uh, up until a few years ago j j pretending I was a downhill skier, probably at upwards of 50, 60 miles an hour. Think about a fallen. <laughs> not, not good. And even in my sport, skiing, we realize you got to protect your noggin. Although it was unthinkable for me to wear a helmet uh, a number of years ago, and we didn't wear helmets, now I have to say I'm going to be wearing a helmet. But what about the physical abuse of my knees and my low back and that sort of thing? Lucky enough, knock on wood, like my head, uh, I haven't had a significant injury. But I do know people that want to get into a sport, and they want to dive in, and they want to be a 20-year-old, but they're 40 and 50. And they want to run their first marathon uh, for whatever reason. Uh, it's personal. I don't know why anybody wants to run a marathon, but that's just me. They they train, but they, they'll buy a magazine and they'll follow a train guide, or they'll get on the internet and follow some um, training guru, or they'll go to YouTube. And that does not replace the careful hands and eyes of a medical professional that looks you over before you start to do anything. So benchmarks. This is why people fail their benchmarks. For that very reason of invincibility, or I think it, I think I can do this, I know I can do this, but they didn't have a team behind them, behind them helping with understanding themselves 
internally to externally. First of all, it's not a good idea for anybody over 35, 40 years old to be uh, entering into an extreme sport without knowing what your heart is, without knowing uh, what your physical barriers are. It's just not a good idea. And I can remember when I was a paramedic for the city and county of Denver, we had marathons in Denver, and I went to a number of uh, calls. One I remember in particular is that the, it was in the Capitol uh, parking lot, and uh, a uh, man of about 50, 55 years old was in cardiac arrest. Um, and we did not get him back, but he was running a marathon. Was he prepared? I bet he wasn't, and I bet he really didn't understand his warning signs. He didn't understand his physical habitus, his uh, internal to out. Uh, he, you have to understand that. So with these benchmarks, to make them successful at 3, 6, 9, and 12 months, make them reasonable. And if you don't think you can get out and really rock um, and you're just a little unsure, get checked and have a low threshold to get in check. Um, if you think that uh, you've had some uh, history in your family of cardiac disease or you're an ex-smoker, you have a little hypertension, whatever, get your EKG. Get your uh, physician to put the stethoscope on your heart. Uh, check, uh, kind of get checked head to toe. Um, some uh, benchmarks that I think are reasonable are folks uh, either joining the Y or joining some aquatic program or silver sneakers for seniors, something that, that is low impact just to get moving. Once you find you're doing, you'll find you can do more. Endurance, uh, you know, God bless our bodies. Uh, endurance is something we can build on. It, there is not a failure. There is not a failure. It's just a slower progression is needed by some. So I'll go back to smoking. Yeah, let's say you're smoking. And we've talked about smoking as it ravages your joints and your spine. And most smokers that get shoulder problems, it, it turns out to be a, a tough problem for us to help you with. We can do it with stem cell therapy and the like and some of the newer techniques, reverse shoulders and the like. But once you have a problem with your shoulder and you're still smoking and you want to get doing, well, you're going to have to start thinking of those modifiable features in your health profile. What can I change? Talk it over with your doc. There are strategies to quit smoking or to cut down on smoking. What's your benchmark? At three months, I'm going to be half pack per day from one pack per day. At six months, I'm going to be down to two or three cigarettes. That's great. And the old adage is, and I don't know what the data is. It's, it's out there, I'm sure, somewhere. Somebody's got some data point that says it takes seven attempts to quit that habit. There's only about 100 uh, chemicals in the world, believe it or not, of millions of chemicals that are addictive, uh, that are really um, tough on the reward system, and that are hard to put down. And I think cigarettes is harder to put down for some people than I've seen heroin, that I've seen cocaine. Now, the triggers are there. Triggers are intense with cocaine, and their triggers are intense with opioids. But there's something about smoking. It's just everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Somebody in the restaurant is smoking. It sets off a trigger. I usually have a cigarette after dinner. You talk it over with your professional. See if you need to be on medication to uh, dampen that uh, desire. Uh, and and see what else is there in your history that makes you at a little higher risk so your benchmarks can be realized. 
So you may want to go from aquatic advanced to land by three, six, nine months. You go to the pool three times a week or you're in low impact aerobic, uh, low um, stress aerobic. The thing about our body, it's amazing. The more you do, the more you can do. If you don't write down your benchmarks, you won't believe that you're improving. Yeah, well, actually, I can walk around the grocery store now without having to sit down for a while, or I don't lean over the grocery cart to take pressure off my back. You know, I'm playing with grandchildren. I've kind of talked about this stuff before. But, you know, the point is, get walking. TV is your enemy. And, you know, don't don't be a, a contradic- contradictory course. Um, if, if you're around people that don't want to enable you, you, you're the you're the product of the five people you hang around the most. Some podcaster said that somewhere, but you want those people to be positive. You want them to be enablers. You want them to understand that you're going to have setbacks every once in a while. Big deal. You've had some setbacks. That does not mean you haven't reached your benchmarks. That's why I like it at three, six, nine, and twelve months. Three months seems to be about the time that you have had a couple slips here and there and you're starting to stabilize and ready to go to the next level i've seen people try to push it to one month it's too much you just want to take it very slow depending on your diagnosis depending if you've had recent surgery depending on your underlying comorbidities or the other medical problems you know think about it talk about it get yourself checked Do not listen to friends and family and do not go to the Internet uh, to reassure yourself that you're good to go. There's nothing like a set of hands and eyes uh, that have a good medical background to get you more successful. Okay, I've been on that soapbox. All right, paperwork. I want to talk a minute about paperwork because I've had some questions about this. Um, there's, (laughs) There's nothing worse when a patient brings in some paperwork and it smells like cigarettes, um, that's that's a red flag for us. But I say that as kind of tongue in cheek, but we get it. We get it. Um, so this is the thing. If you're filling out paperwork for your uh, provider of health care, um, think along the lines of giving them the most information or, or really important information to make the best determination of how to help you. Help you. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go through the basics of a health and history, um, not interview, but information uh, source of uh, data points that really helps us in the pain world. All right, accurate first and last name, and more importantly. A phone number that works. You'd be stunned at how many times during the day we can't get a hold of people. They don't have a phone number that works. And that can mean a lot, especially if we have to get some data to you, like some lab reports or something like that. Your date of birth, put that in there because there are names that are the same. And there can be name errors. Every single healthcare provider has come across a name error. They may say they haven't, but somewhere in their office or somewhere in the hospital, it's happened. You have to have identifiers, even if it's your middle initial. All right. Who referred you? 
That's important because we want to communicate. We want a carbon copy. In this era, we don't – providers rarely talk on the telephone. I like to. It's my favorite form of communication, but it's really hard. Somebody's in a room. Somebody's not in a room. They have to go to a meeting. Uh, they're in the operating room. It's just tough. Now, textings make it a little bit easier, but you have to be careful with uh, uh, privacy and that sort of thing. So how we communicate is important, and uh, it's best done if we know who your important uh, docs are that either referred to you or that uh, had something to do with your care. And uh, really, uh, a knowledge gap sometimes is – I love hearing from nurse practitioners and PAs. They really do the deep dive uh, and get information from patients and know a lot about them. They're really good. For example, a nurse practitioner uh, will have uh, years of nursing experience and ICU experience, and that one-to-one that uh, doctors just love to have, but we just don't get it like we want. They were in the hospital 24 7 we were in our office we were in the operating room wherever they know how to communicate and I, I i'll admit it they communicate so many times uh, better than i do and that information nugget i get from them is fantastic i like to know if you're right or left-handed i do like to know that what is your chief complaint what is bothering you the most right now for how long and we don't need to know the details my pain was here my pain was there migratory the thing that is bothering you the most right now, that is your chief complaint. Give us an idea of the level of your pain. Although I don't really like it on the scale of 1 to 10, you can try that. Most people are always at 7 or 8 or 9. It, it doesn't really tell me a lot, but what I do like to hear is your endurance, how you feel, uh, what your mood is, uh, particularly if you're depressed or if you have any situational depression anxiety that is largely unchecked, ever feel suicidal, ever feel like harming self or others i really want to know that what your function is has it improved or declined and what is your sleep most people will say my sleep is terrible well <clears throat> that's interesting and i want to help you with that but it's a pretty much a bad idea to treat it with a pill we want to have a diagnosis okay where your problem is and descriptors Use these words, dull, constant, aching, numbness, throbbing, tingling, sharp, weakness, burning, stabbing, lancinating. They all mean something to me. Each one of these words means something to me. Is it improved with rest, heat, ice, therapy, medication? Tell me about that. I want to know what makes it worse, walking, bending, sitting, working, therapy, whatever makes it worse. And what tests you've had. I don't need to know in great detail all your tests. I can get those. But anything within the past two years, like x-rays, nerve conduction studies, CT, MRI, bone scans, something like that, you know, those are significant diagnostic studies. I want to know about them. And how you injured yourself if you did injure yourself. Auto accidents, sports, work-related, or whatever. You know, fill in the blank. We do want to hear about that. All right. Pet peeve. When we ask for your medications, don't say, have it on file. Don't say that. You might have forgotten, uh, and this happens to us all in interventional pain medicine, that you were started on a blood thinner uh, a month and a half ago, and you kind of forgot about it, and we're getting ready to do an interventional procedure. Um, bring them all in in a baggie. Work them through. Work it out. Um, don't be shy. We want to see your medicines. 
and of course allergies. And we've gone through allergies on another podcast. An allergy is not necessarily I itch. That's like a histamine release, or I get sick. That's a side effect. We want to know the side effects of certain medications that are relevant to us, particularly in the pain world. This thing called a review of systems is uh, key to us, but it's something we will direct you on. Your constitutional, eyes, ears, nose, and throat, your cardiovascular, respiratory, gastrointestinal, uh, musculoskeletal, skin, allergic, endocrine, psychiatric, neurological, etc. Past surgeries or hospitalizations, don't skimp. I want to know what surgeries you had. They're all relevant to me. And hospitalizations, if they were significant, I, well, I had a heart attack once, and I was only in there a day. That's significant. So let me know your medical problems. Heart, lung, strokes, diabetes, cancer, hypertension, any new type of headache or neurological changes. And the family history in all of those categories, but add disability. I want to know if people are disabled in your family and for what reason. Your smokers and, you know, be honest, packs per day, be honest. But don't say, I don't smoke. And you were smoking in the past 25 years at one pack per day. But I quit. But you write zero. Well, you were a smoker. <laughs> I, I really need to know if you're a previous smoker. Alcohol, uh, the rule of thumb is whatever people admit, we double it. And that's maybe not fair, and we don't always do that. But we'd rather err on the, on the side of safety and comprehensive analysis. Particularly if we're using opioid pain medications, we've got to be really careful. So never occasionally, daily, how much. And we go by ounces. We'll do that. We'll help you with that. Are you working? Yes or no? Do you like your job? Do you, are you in litigation? That sort of thing. How long have you been off work? Are you married? Do you have a chaotic household, a, a stable household, kids at home? How many kids? Um, you know, and kind of in lockstep with the family history, if we see something that uh, is important and has an overlay, like um, there's a genetic trail or that one member had one problem and the next member of a family in a different generation had the same problem, we'll try to put that together. So, so you might want to help us put that together. And then we'll do this thing. Uh, we'll look at you and we'll say, what's your gait like, your affect, and your appearance? That's important to us. Is your vital signs fine? Do you have a regular heart rate, irregular heart rate? And we should ask you uh, orientation questions like person, place, or time. Just this week, I, I had to do those, those sad Alzheimer questions. Do you remember where you put your keys, etc.? Don't think we're talking down to you when we're asking you these things. Do, this is what we do. And you pick up some subtle stuff. I don't remember really where my key, How'd you get here? My daughter brought my son brought me my daughter brought me you sure okay so okay now this is this is what we have for uh the medical medical side of things and the interventional side of things in pain medicine we have this concept called medical necessity um that helps us define whether we want to go forward with the procedure or we can treat you another way. It, what is medically necessary, even for a urine drug screen? What is medically necessary to get a certain blood test? What is medically necessary? So in our world, declining functional indices, poor restorative sleep capacity, poor activities of daily living, progressive neurological problems, musculoskeletal problems have declined, um, 
you have impairment or perception of disability and it, it's really not responding and you're seeing your environment kind of slip away you're becoming more disabled as opposed to enabled for opioid therapy the federation of state medical board uh, has suggested these things so these are what we're thinking the medical history supports it your drug history doesn't have any contraindications or supports it so same with the pain history once again you got to go back to that diagnosis We've done the appropriate studies, we have a working diagnosis, we have a treatment plan, and we have benchmarks. See where all this is coming from? Rationale for treatment selected. Well, improve function and quality of life, medical necessity. Have we educated you? That's a process of informed consent, and we'll go through informed consent at some time. Doctor and patient understands methods and goals of treatment. Benchmarks, informed consent. Follow-up protocol. And you have to adhere to it. You can't just say you're going to do it. You've got to, got to follow through with it. So, in other words, you do an intervention, you follow up with it. You see how it worked out for you. And you get a consultation with a pain specialist, either that's more focused than you on a certain problem or a pain specialist in particular, uh, like a rheumatologist or something like this for fibro. Um, and once again, if you don't believe in the diagnosis or think it's entirely psychosomatic, you, of course, need to refer it out. And you take a multidisciplinary approach when indicated. So, okay, that is for opioid necessity checklist. And we should also be going through tolerance, pseudo-tolerance, physical dependence, what addiction is, and pseudo-addiction, not necessarily all at one visit, but through the course of care. And that, that, that just adds to that no barrier to communication. Let's go on to this next topic. And this is a little controversial, and I want to make it that. And I want to make it uh, controversial so we keep a conversation going. Abuse deterrent technology. Okay, we touched on that. What can we do to opioid preparations that keep them, um, what we would say, uh, less abusable? Nothing, of course, is going to be bulletproof but less abusable. And the FDA has said that any new opioid that comes out has to have abuse deterrent technology. What is that? Well, in the case of one drug, if you snort it, it's got uh, an agent in it that'll burn your nose like crazy. So that'll ruin the buzz. Naltrexone is in another one. Uh, the brand name is Embedda. It's a Pfizer product. Um, that's morphine. And uh, it's... Uh, these little tiny things that, that if you crush up <clears throat> the morphine or if you try to take it uh, nefariously, the naltrexone will reverse it <laughs> and tamper resistant. Um, it's got like the hard shell on it, and that's uh, in many different forms. And it's funny because patients will come in and they'll say, I can't take the, um, the medication that's got the, sh the, the shell on it. It upsets my stomach like razors. They all say the same thing. They all go to the websites that um, tell them how to get, tell you how to get away from these uh, these drugs and uh, uh, get your provider to write a generic or um, brand uh, without the abuse deterrent technology. Now, if they're if somebody's doing that, it's a red flag for us. If you're trying to get away from abuse deterrent technology, you've really uh, informed yourself uh, about that drug. You've been on the internet, checked it out talk to a pharmacist or whatever and that's uh, that can be that can be problematic okay um 
but are these drugs really going to work? Let's look at this. And why it's important is because I don't think the data is too good. I've tried looking at the data, and there's a couple studies out there, uh, Cicero from uh, Washington University and, and others. Um, and let's, let's look at this here. S- simply shifting the drug of choice um, to abuse deterrent technology will decrease the lively activity of that drug, and I'm going to beat up OxyContin for a minute. Um, it'll, it'll beat it up, and use will drop. And that sounds great, doesn't it? But nope, it means that uh, patients are going to cheaper drugs, and what is that drug on the street? It's heroin. And what do people do when they snort or inject heroin? They die. Um, so that's important. It's um, kind of one of those things that you have to be careful of the fallacy of false generalization. That's why you have to be careful with data when you read these articles. In the Journal of uh, Medical Economics, they exclaimed that the cost savings with um, these uh, abuse deterrent technology drugs in the extended release form showed a relative reduction uh, of diagnosed opioid abuse by 22%. And that saved um, in U.S. Uh, bucks in the range of about $430 billion. All right, let's look at these two studies. So OxyContin use dropped significantly. And, yeah, okay, OxyContin use um, dropped, saving money. That's all good, right? And they made the bold conclusion that relative reduction of diagnosed opioid abuse dropped 22%. Did it really? How do we know, and what was your what was your markers to say that abuse dropped? It might have just simply shifted to another drug, or they may have found another source that uses uh, this abuse deterrent technology free um, agent uh, like pure oxycodone, and. Uh, sometimes we'd see that maybe in a pill mill or or near pill mill or a physician that just is, you know, in a hurry or doesn't have a familiarity with abuse to turn technology. So I just want to say we have to be careful early on with this abuse to turn technology to make uh, a lot of these bold uh, conclusions. And let's just see where the data takes us down the line. I personally use it when I can use it. But it's kind of expensive, and it's not covered by a lot of plans, sometimes even Medicare. Uh, Now, the champions, Medicaid, uh, has included abuse deterrent technology medications in their formulary in a number of states. In North Carolina, they have, and they should be uh, commended for that. So um, once again, I appreciate the companies developing this technology, and maybe someday we'll have all prescribed opioids with uh, a safety bubble around it uh, to protect patients. But as of right now, the data is is yes, maybe yes, maybe no, and let's just see how it turns out. Okay, let's, uh, let's follow that one. I'm going to um, search around for a few more articles that I think are noteworthy, and I'll present them to you. But I'm going to get to the article of the week. And this is a, this is a good one for both uh, the uh, provider and I think, and I think uh, patients can read this too. Um, 
It's called Com- Comprehensive Review of Opioid-Induced Hyperalgesia. I had a little something to do with this. Uh, lead author was Marion Lee. Uh, and it's a focused review from Pain Physician 2011. And you can search at asipp.org, go to the journal, and you can, you can find this article. It's a, it's a good one. And what it does is it talks about something that I've kind of alluded to, but it goes into detail. And it's, it's a, it goes a little bit of a deep dive, but it talks about historical considerations of opioid-induced hyperalgesia dating back to the 19th century. This is not something that's new that's been sitting around. And, uh, Rosenbach in 1880 noted that, quote, when dependence on opioids finally becomes an illness of itself, comma, Opposite effects like restlessness, comma, sleep disturbance, comma, hyperesthesia, comma, et cetera, et cetera. Irritability become manifest. In other words, you take too much opioid, and the opioid starts working against itself, and you hurt. And that's been seen with morphine. It's been seen with so many of our opioids, but unrecognized so often. So this article goes into it, and it's it's an important article because it just emphasizes and, and underscores one thing. More is not always better. Now, this still is a controversial uh, topic, and it's it's kind of interesting how it hasn't really taken hold, but it's an important concept to understand that sometimes when you're taking a high dose of opioids and you're not getting anywhere, you may need to have adjuncts or medications that help with... Uh, uh, lowering the dose, the opioid load, as opposed to increasing the dose because it's working against you. So um, anyway, it's something to know and it's something to read. And it it's a timely article even today. And there's even a little ditzel there on ketamine. So uh, as you know, I'm very pro-ketamine. I'm going to say thanks for listening and leave a uh, review at iTunes, please. You go to iTunes Store, go to Pain Information Podcast, and then it's reviews. If you leave a review, it helps us rank. Thank you so much. And leave me a message on paininformation.com, and I'll answer questions you might have uh, as soon as I can get to them. Uh, Today's uh, topics, I think, were important because I do get asked <laughs> a lot why we have so dang much paperwork. And the reason we have so much paperwork is we, we need data. Uh, a little bit is good, but a lot is better in this regard. And it really gives me the opportunity to broaden my differential diagnosis to understand you more. So that's why we did that. And there's nothing wrong with a little bit of controversy and abuse deterrent technology. That might be something to talk about. I'm sure I'll hear from some folks on that one. Um, Now, I'm just going to talk real quickly about pain-free deception because uh, I I said I would mention something about it. Um, I see on TV, especially light on TV, people getting these um, copper... Uh, items and uh, braces and magnets and that sort of stuff, 92% pain relief. Well, uh, as uh, my nurse uh, said (laughs) very wisely, she said, well, that means everybody is 8%. She knows it, and she understands it. She sees that uh, people come in with these copper things on or they got these magnets on, 
and they know they've been kind of like led down the pathway from really it's almost just desperation and i just want you to think when you're purchasing these items have their claims been big and do you know people that are using these items and what is the methodology of their quote studies and just because it was a study at a major university or that uh, it's endorsed by uh, a physician. Who is that physician? It might be a pediatrician. Uh, nothing wrong with pediatricians, but they're not, they're not paying people for adults. So, um, you know, I've um, over the years seen um, these uh, commercials say things like studied at a major university. That doesn't mean it was a positive study. It just means that it was studied. So um, just be a consumer. That's all I'm saying here is be a consumer. And if, it, if it's in pills and that sort of thing, be a super consumer. Um, you know, you put stuff in your mouth. you got to know what you're putting in your mouth. Well, thanks again, and um, I will see you soon.